Okay, turn to Colossians 3, if you have a Bible with you. Colossians chapter 3. We'll continue through this list of household, people, categories that Paul's dealing with in Colossians 3. He's saying that there's a new self, remember that? He's saying there's an old way and then a new way. And a new way is to be lived out in love and lived out with forgiveness. And now there's no different identity in this new man, this new church, this even new creation. There's, it's not Greek or Jew, he said in verse 11, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He said Christ is all and in all. And then he went through wives and husbands, verses 18 and 19, children and parents, verse 20 and 21. And now let's look at verse 22. Where there Paul writes, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, you can see this goes into chapter 4. Remember, the chapter headings, the verse headings, were added after the Bible was written. These letters to churches were written. And so sometimes they get it just right where you say, yeah, that's where we should stop. And other times you have to keep reading a little bit more and say, Really, this is the same topic, even though it begins a new chapter here in our Bibles. Now, the first thing I want to do is ask the question, what do slaves and masters mean? Before we get into the nitty-gritty of these verses and what they're teaching, let's just ask the bigger, broader question of what's the difference between Roman first century culture and American 21st century culture. You see, often with a passage like this, preachers are too guilty of just quickly saying, slaves, masters, well, let's just treat that as bosses and employees, and then moving on. And I've done that before. I think I've been guilty of that before. Now, I think there's some good reason to think that this passage has something to say about 21st century work or work in general, jobs as we know them today apart from slavery. But we can't jump there too hastily, especially with our history with slavery in this culture. And because many a skeptic would point to this part of the Bible, a passage like this in the Bible, and they would say, see, The Bible condones slavery. I mean, it can't be trusted. No one condones slavery with any sense today. Surely this is a bad book or at the very least a very archaic and so culturally saturated book that it's it's basically useless. What would we say to that? Well, three things. Number one, Roman slavery was not exactly the same as American slavery. Similarities, yes, but but many differences, and we should recognize them, again, especially with our country's history with that horrible African slave trade. When we as Americans hear the word slave or slavery, we think American African slave trade. We think that whole thing. We think that business. Well, there are some similarities to that in Roman slavery, but some differences as well. 
Here's one difference. Some Roman slaves were enslaved because they accrued a massive debt. And they had no way to pay back this massive debt except to work it off. So you see this sometimes in movies, don't you? I don't know if it's true. It's never thankfully happened to me. But you see in movies, a guy eats his food at a diner, and then he realizes he didn't have his wallet on him. And so he, I don't have my wallet. What do they make him do? Always wash dishes, right? Because they know he can't cook, and you know, they don't trust him with anything else, I guess. But he always has to wash dishes. I don't know if that's accurate, that really happens. Maybe if you've never paid your bill before without a wallet on you, you might know. But my point is just, that's something like what was going on in the Roman culture with some category of slaves. Just that, but a bigger version of it, right? They didn't just have a food bill. They had many thousands of dollars, maybe you know hundreds of thousands in our, our dollars in this day and age today, what it would be like. Some were slaves because they had to pay off a debt. They were indentured servants. Not all. Some were captured in war. Some were purchased, yes. Some were born into it because their parents were slaves. But my point is that the picture's diverse. Also, slaves were considered, in many cases, a part of a Roman household. Not completely, but way more so than what we would think of as we look back and watch a movie or read a history book about American slavery. They were more attached to the whole Roman household. They were seen as people in their culture. Yes, they were in some ways treated as possessions. They were sometimes bought and sold, but they were simultaneously, even if paradoxically, treated as people. And you can't say that about American slavery. No, in that case, American slavery, slaves were sold just like cattle or farming equipment. And to keep that trade going, to keep that business going, they emphasized the fact that they weren't people. Some Roman slaves were put in charge of a master's possession or money. They would often go into the city to do this or that thing for their master. They were given money and told to go use it, go do it. Can you imagine, again, American slavery, just letting a slave go? No, that wouldn't have happened. He'll run away, surely. Well, in Roman slavery, oftentimes they were highly educated, skilled at a trade, and often put in charge of a master's possession, part of his land, some of his money, and they were told to go and run with it. So some slaves would have looked more like a manager of a small business than one of the lower-rung employees of a small business. In fact, it was well known that it was easier for a good, effective slave to climb the societal ladder, to climb the economic ladder, than someone who was impoverished and free. The one who's impoverished and free doesn't nearly have the contacts, the connections that a slave and an efficient, gifted slave would have had. Some slaves earned enough money they could eventually purchase their freedom. And children of such slaves were given full Roman citizenship. There was also a category for what they called public slaves. These were slaves of the republic. They worked for the government, doing a specific job, perhaps being a barber, being a secretary. And and in some cases, they didn't have an individual to report to. They were sort of their own boss. 
many of the categories of slaves would to us sound more like contract labor today, more like contract labor in our culture, where they're bound to keep doing a job because they said they would. Wayne Grudem, when he was here uh, about a year ago, I remember during one of the Q&As we did with him, he mentioned that slavery, the vast majority of it anyway, in ancient Rome would have very closely resembled something like today's military, where you sign up, but then you're in. And once you're in, you can be bossed around, you can be told to move, and you can also be put in charge of certain things and have certain responsibilities based on your ability and gifting. By the start of the second century, Nero, remember him? Nero, mean old Nero, the one probably most famous in all of history for killing Christians. Nero in the second century was starting to allow slaves to file official complaints in court about their master's mistreatment. Now all that said, there are some similarities between Roman slavery and American slavery. Similar to American slavery, in first century Rome, there was a suspicion on the part of the masters that, that one day there would be a widespread slave insurrection if they weren't careful, if they didn't keep their thumb on some of these guys. And they'd have reason to fear that in a sense because there was a great slave rebellion in 71 BC led by Spartacus, a gladiator slave. There was another slave rebellion 30 years before that and another one 30 years before that. So they had 90 years here of every 30 years there being this slave insurrection. So many slaves were controlled. Many of them were beaten. Some of them were killed by their masters. But again, the overall picture is, you can see, diverse. It has some similarities, similarities with American slavery and also many differences. Secondly, what do slaves and masters mean? Well, these categories, slave and master, are descriptive, not prescriptive. Descriptive is what is. That's descriptive. Prescriptive is what should be. And Paul isn't saying slaves and masters, that's what should be. He's simply saying, this is what is. And just because Paul doesn't condemn slavery here in this passage doesn't mean that God condones slavery. And it certainly doesn't mean that he condones every form of slavery, however bad it is. No, Paul doesn't make some sort of blanket statement against slavery here in this passage, in part because Remember, it was so diverse. There were some that was like our military, like indentured servants. It would have been something like, for, you know, the, the orange suit guys who are picking up trash on the side of the hill on the highway. They would have seen that as some form of slavery. We have different words for these, but back then in Roman culture, it would have been all under the umbrella of these people are slaves, even if they're temporary slaves. So Paul, because of the diversity of slavery in his culture, doesn't make some sort of blanket statement about it, about it being wrong or bad in every case. Paul's using categories which are, not just categories which should be. And Paul recognizes that one letter to a, a church in the Roman outskirts, the city of Colossae, isn't going to overturn the government on 
this issue of slavery, even if he thought that it was wrong in total. 25% to maybe even 33% of Rome was made up of slaves. One-fourth to one-third of Rome was slaves. That's not something that gets fixed overnight. That's not something that, that changes in an instant. I think that's relevant for us in some roundabout way. Luther, Martin Luther, talked about stations, stations of life. God has us in stations. A station is a, a situation or a calling for a season of life. So you live in Albuquerque, and you have kids, and you have that job that you have, and you live in that neighborhood that you're in. That's all part of your station right now. Well, Luther said that sometimes those stations aren't just. They're not decent. They're not naturally good. But God is decent, and God is just, and God is good in the midst of it, and he has purposes for it. We have to recognize that some lived and died in an age of slavery, and the Bible speaks to their life even in their slavery. It doesn't, it doesn't encourage slavery in the least. The Bible is ultimately against slavery. But it speaks to people who are in slavery. It speaks about more than just public justice. The Bible speaks about more than economic justice. It speaks about more than just social equities. Though it addresses these things. It doesn't speak to less than these things, but it does speak to more than these things. What that means is that the Bible gives us principles for godly living even when we're in an unjust station of life. Paul tells the Roman church, Romans 13, to obey the government and honor the government. And guess who the government is at that time? Well, it's not just the Romans in general. It's Nero specifically. Nero is on the throne and Paul says, obey, honor. You say, Ryan, that sounds fatalistic. Are you saying don't vote? But what's that mean for us now? You're saying don't seek change? When it's this party, we shouldn't want it to be that party? No, sure we should. But you already know that, don't you? If you're an American, and if you're a Christian American, and especially if you're a Christian American that turns on Fox News, you already know that you should be involved. You already know that you should vote. You already know that you should get riled up. What we need, though, what we don't seem to know, seem to grasp, is Luther's idea of stations, of having some modicum of contentment when those stations are hard, when the circumstances don't seem right and just. We need a stronger view of God's providence that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it in his hand like waters. He just just turns his hand and the waters go and so the king's heart does. That means God has purposes for the station that you're in right now, even if it's hard. So marriages shouldn't be quit because they hurt or because you married a sinner. Marriages shouldn't be quit 
Kids shouldn't run away just because they feel misunderstood. Unless you're 25, then it's not called running away, it's called moving out. (laughs) Jobs shouldn't be quit necessarily because the boss is unjust or because the job is frustrating or because the job doesn't utilize your special gifts, your wants, your likes. We should... Obey and honor masters, even ones that aren't good. Listen to 1 Peter 2. And by the way, the Bible addresses this thing of work, masters and slaves in its context of the first century Roman world, basically. But, but it applies to work, applies to us today, to jobs. And it's all over the place. But here's one of those places where it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. It's a grace-giving thing, grace-telling thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christians should be known in their city for people with a high tolerance for pain. And I say that as someone who does not have a high tolerance for pain. Oh, I don't mean like my skin or who can take the hardest punch or, you know, who can get cut without anesthesia. I'm not, I don't mean that. I, I, I mean the pain of circumstances. Christians should be those who have a high tolerance for pain. Oh, I know there's another side of the coin here. I, I, know, there's, I know there's another side to this issue of an unjust boss And sometimes it might be right and decent for you to say enough and walk out. But we all know that we're able and sometimes right to tell the boss, take this job and shove it. Right? We don't need to hear that. We know that side of the coin. What we soft American Christians need to hear is that Christians should suffer and should suffer unjustly. Because anyone can quit a bad job. Anyone can give up on a bad marriage. Anyone can leave a problem. Christians are those generally who endure. So one roundabout implication of this may be that you need to be contented. You need to stay. You need to bloom where you're planted, especially if I can step on your toes here, 20-somethings. I mean, there are books on this. You know that. I hope if you're 20-something, you know that, you know, there are books written on my generation, Gen X, and they're written on, you know, Gen Y and the various generations. The 20-somethings of our day are sort of famous for, I don't know, being discontented, of feeling entitled, of not being terribly hardworking. All right, what do slaves and masters mean? There's one more. What is prescriptive in this passage goes beyond cultural norms. 
Remember, the second one was the categories are descriptive, not prescriptive. The categories of slave and master are descriptive. Paul wasn't prescribing those categories. He was simply working with the categories that were already there. But where he gets prescriptive and tells each of these categories what to do, he goes far beyond cultural norms. Let me show you some examples. Notice verse 22, Paul addresses slaves directly. We saw that last week, right? He addresses kids directly. These household codes are, in a sense, so very cultural. They're so very Aristotelian. Remember, Aristotle's the first one we said last week that did this, these household codes. But Paul does it in a unique way. And here he addresses slaves directly, not through their masters, but to them directly. And he addresses them as Christians, as members of the household of faith. They might have different responsibilities than their masters, but they have no less equal standing before Christ. Remember, he's already said, look at verse 11. Now in Christ, there's not Greek, not Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, doesn't matter. Christ is all and in all. He doesn't tinker with the home He doesn't tinker with what's there in that social economic structure. But he is insistent that when you come to church, there is no difference. Slaves do not go through their masters to the master. Paul isn't concerned to tell masters how to control slaves better or how to get the most work out of them. He only instructs masters to be humble and honest and just and fair toward their slaves. Throughout this passage, there's tone, there are tones of the first and second greatest commandment. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Neither of those are explicit here in the passage, but they're all over the place in a sense. Do this in love for your neighbor. Guess what, slaves? Your closest neighbor is your master. Guess what, masters? Your closest neighbor may be the one under you. He paints a picture of equality here. Both slaves and masters are serving the same Lord Jesus. Both share a common master, Jesus. He stresses, I think, in verse 22 when he says, you have earthly masters, that they're just earthly masters. You've got earthly masters, but don't worry. You have a real master in heaven. I think there's a sense in which he's saying these slaves don't work for their earthly masters. In a sense, they work for their heavenly one ultimately. So what is prescriptive goes way beyond cultural norms. Okay, now I think we're in a position to more quickly go through the rest of the passage here and have, you know, sort of one foot planted in this world, the 21st century American context, and one foot planted in Paul's world of first century Rome to see how what Paul says applies to both, especially to our own, now that we know what he was saying to the Colossian church. So the second question in your notes is, how should work be done? What do slaves and masters mean first? Now, how should work be done? Well, I think six ways. First, obediently. That's the most obvious, obediently. 
Verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, this isn't unique to Paul's situation. This isn't unique to slavery. We all have earthly masters. Whether those earthly masters are parents, if you're still at home, a husband, in a sense, pastors, in a sense, are in leadership over others, government, we have masters, we have leaders, we have those in a hierarchy, teachers. Most of us have earthly masters even in our job, right? We have a literal boss. We have someone who's over us. Now, some have their own self as boss, right? They own their own business. They don't have a boss per se, but you just go ahead and ask those, those folks who have their own business how free they feel. Not very free. Yeah, they could not go in tomorrow, and it would go to heck in a handbasket, right? They know if they don't show, there's trouble. So even then, they don't feel so free. And in others who maybe run something big, maybe it looks like they're the boss. For service, I use the illustration of Bill Anderson. Bill Anderson, my buddy, he, he's president of KRQE here in town, runs, I don't know, five stations or something like that, four or five But every now and then, he'll shoot me an email and say, can't do it, the boss is in town. He's got a boss. He's president. He's boss of Albuquerque TV, for for some stations anyway. Uh, But there's a boss who shows up, and then Bill is under someone. Or each of our elders. We lead a ministry. We oversee an area. But each of us submits to the whole of the group, the whole of the eldership. We're all under authority, even as we're in authority. And then for many of us, maybe most of us, we have a very clear boss. There's order, there's hierarchy, and God isn't against that. He frequently uses that. God is not a Marxist. In his providence, he's brought you to that boss, that overseer. He has you at that station and he commands you to obey them. Isn't that that heavy? God commands you. That's a heavy concept, right? Whatever God commands, it comes with the full authority of all heaven and earth. God commands you to obey them. So in a sense, what they tell us comes from God. Now, just like we said about kids who might have parents who are telling them to sin and Kids don't have to obey that. So just like this, if the boss is telling you to do something unethical, you shouldn't do it. Acts 5, it's better to obey God than to obey man. But that category aside, Christians should obey their earthly leaders in everything. Not just the things that are fun. Not just the things that make them feel fulfilled or utilize their gifts or present opportunities for advancement or use your degree. Not just the things that are new and exciting because you can't stand doing the same thing twice. Not just the things that help us look good, but to obey them. In fact, even to honor them, 1 Timothy 6.1 says, regard masters with all honor. That leads to the second thing. Our work should be done honorably. Honorably. 
verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. I think this is talking about our work not being motivated merely by a boss's watching eye. Oh, he's here. So I think there are a couple parts to this. One would be not working hard when the boss isn't around and then working hard to show off when he shows up, when you're in his sight. That's people-pleasing. This is referring, to, I think, to selective hard work and self-serving work. My first job was at a car dealership. I was a porter, which means you go get cars, you move cars around, you park them, you wash them, you bring them up, and that sort of thing. It wasn't a whole lot of accountability with this job. I could disappear for big parts of the day, you know, go into a bathroom stall, not because I have to go, just because I, I was hiding. You know, but I learned this, that if you, if you walk fast and have a grimace face, and especially if you carry something, like you got this thing, a wrench or, you know, this rag, or you, you got something, and you walk fast and look like you're concerned, no one says anything to you. Right? They just let you, he, he's, stay out of his way. He's got something going on. He's got something in the cooker there. That guy works. He works hard. I didn't work hard at all. I washed a few cars and, and walked around a lot with a grimaced face, <laughs> carrying various things. I mean, it's so funny now. Paul is calling us to hard work that isn't selective. It doesn't go in spurts because God is watching. Even if the boss doesn't see, even if the boss is sort of clueless, or even if the boss isn't a very good hands-on leader, and so he said you should really do this, but you know he doesn't really follow up, and there really aren't any consequences for that. Even if you should work hard, you should work unto the Lord. Because God is watching, he knows and he sees. It should be done with sincerity of heart. Not with eye service, only when they're looking. Not as people pleasers, just trying to please them right then. But with sincerity of heart. Literally, it's singleness of heart. It taps into bigger motivations than than mere advancement. Because you can get advancement by people pleasing by simply eye service work. Taps into bigger motivations than just advancement or people pleasing or doing the bare minimum or getting out of work. It needs to come from the heart. It needs to be wholehearted work. I know we never get there. We won't this side of heaven. We won't have wholehearted anything. You say, oh, I do it. I do it wholeheartedly. No, you don't. You think you do. But we do it distractedly. We do it not with every bit of our soul, mind, strength, being. One day we will. And until then, that's what we're aiming for as Christians, right? Do it honorably. Do it third, heartily. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily. Heartily, of course, means diligently. So much in the Proverbs talks about working diligently, addresses the sluggard in Proverbs, the lazy guy. So much is said about that. Read those Proverbs if you struggle with laziness. But Proverbs 
and even more so the book of Ecclesiastes, written by the same guy, don't just talk about work that's ignored, but they also talk about work that's idolized, idolized work. And each of us tend toward one of those more than the other. We either like to get out of work or we tend to make it our everything. Know yourself. Both are sin. Both are wrong. And we should also note that in our culture, we have a culture that doesn't relax well at all. So my wife and kids and I this week go up to a cabin in the woods. There's nothing around. There's no internet connection. There's no cable TV. We've been there before. The first day is pretty restless. We kind of, we don't know what to do. Ever done this? Ever done that kind of vacation? If all you ever do is the Disney World vacation, you need to find out how, how dependent you are on busyness and just go sit somewhere until you actually like it. For me, it takes about a day and a half. Day and a half of aggravated, really sit this long, do nothing, really take a nap again, I don't feel like it. Let's go build something. But I'm not building something because it's fun. I'm building something because I feel like I have to do something. So stupid. And then, day and a half into it, ah, turn into a noodle. You find out how much you needed that. So our culture is one that doesn't relax well, but it's not a culture that works well. We're just busy. And Blaise Pascal, philosopher and mathematician, would tell us, We like that kind of busyness because we like distraction. It keeps us from eternal things, eternally big and weighty things. Do your work heartily. Work hard and do it with the heart. Doing it heartily literally means doing it with the heart. The, The Greek word is soul, psuche, like where we get the word psychology. Do it with the soul. Put your soul and heart into doing this work hard. Do it forth worshipfully. Worshipfully. You see this way back in verse 17, not that far back, but a verse we're not looking at this morning. Chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then at the end of verse 22, you don't fear man, you fear the Lord, fearing the Lord. And verse 23, you're to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Similar to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Or the way Paul puts it in Romans 12 is that our bodies, our lives are to be living sacrifices. Everything is to be a sacrifice of worship unto God. It's hard, you're a sacrifice. It's good, good, let it go up as a sweet aroma to him. Do it consciously unto the Lord. 1 Peter 4 says we're to serve in the strength that God supplies so that he gets the glory. There's a way to serve where you get the glory. And there's a way to serve where he gets the glory. One way you serve or work that he gets the glory 
as you cast your burdens on him. How many of you do work and you have burdens with your work? Just go ahead, put your hands up. You have burdens with your work? The rest of you are lying or you don't have an arm. Right? Work is burdensome. One of the ways we glorify God is by giving those burdens to the Lord. And notice Paul didn't specify what kind of work he's been talking about. What does that mean? Yeah, any kind of work can be this lofty, this worshipful. He doesn't say, for those of you doing really important, you know, social, cultural, changing work, for those of you doing this, let it be worship. For those of you doing ministry, you're a full-time minister, let it be worship. He says, do your work heartily unto the Lord, whatever you do. William Tyndale, he said this, this renders every task of intrinsic value. It integrates every vocation with a Christian spiritual life. It makes every job consequential by making it the arena for glorifying and obeying God and expressing one's love through service to one's neighbor. John Cotton, the American Puritan, put it like this. God is in the barn and he's in the chapel, the church. The worship between them might be different, but it's still worship. Worship while you work. Fifth, work expectantly. He says in verse 24, knowing that from whom, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. We receive an inheritance from the Lord. That's our reward. There's a reward for my work. And it's not just a Christmas bonus. Our true reward isn't a paycheck. This tells us that jobs aren't just a necessary evil. We don't work so that we can get money, so that we can, you know, pay the necessary bills and hopefully have a little bit left over for some spending for fun entertainment. Paul has, you could say, bigger fish to fry than that. That's why he in 1 Timothy 6 talks about working and having in order to give, in order to do things eternal. Or the way Jesus put it is, lay up treasures not on earth, but take your treasures on earth and turn them into treasures in heaven. Put your mind there. Set your affections there. Seek the things which are Above, orientate your your money, your getting, your giving, your spending, your budget according to an expectation that there's something better coming than whatever material possession you can buy. A reward in heaven. Lastly, this one is directed to masters and bosses. Their work should be done respectfully even lovingly. Now, he's basically already implied this, the same thing to workers, that they should be respectful, even loving. But here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says to masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, notice how equality of worth and position in Christ are stressed. There's a shared master. They have that common identity. So masters, bosses, 
overseers, treat them with dignity. Don't try necessarily just to keep getting more for less. How can I get more out of them without them leaving? What's that, what's that breaking point where if I do too much, if I expect too much, if I make this too hard, they'll leave. I don't want that, but I want to go right one inch before that. Paul has problems with that. God has problems with that. God says, treat them justly. Treat them fairly. Treat them with dignity. Trust God for the rest. Again, the second greatest commandment has to be in mind here. Love them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto them as you would have them do unto you. What if you were the employee and they were the boss? How would you want to be treated? Now, before we wrap this up, I just want to give one big picture snapshot of the meaning of work because this implies some things about work, and yet it doesn't tell us why work even exists. And, and so I'm not even talking here about a job with a boss or something like that, but any kind of work, whether that's work in the home or work for mom and dad. Let's talk about work. Let's start with this. God works. Genesis 1 and 2 show him working. He creates He's happy in his work. He's creative in his work. He's clever in his work. He called Adam and Eve to work, to subdue, to manage, to multiply. They work. Then they sin and curse enters this world. But the curse doesn't create work. Work was already there. It, it, it frustrated work. It made work more difficult. The language of Genesis 3 is thorns and thistles. Sweat of your brow. And that's not just for farmers. When your computer crashes in the midst of a, a, a big report you're preparing, thorns and thistles, sweat of the brow. Well, I didn't literally sweat. I know, but that's the, the point is, God gave us there in Genesis 3 a picture that all work would be frustrated, work would be hard. We have, we have an explanation for the thorns and thistles, the pain in the heartache of work in this world. But in Christ, God is restoring things unto himself. That's why Jesus came and required him to die and be raised from the dead to birth a new creation. We're now in him. We do what God does. We're restored to the imitation of our father who, who works and works well and works happily and creatively and powerfully. That's why we work. We work because we're made in his image. And Jesus is restoring that image. You say, Ryan, that sounds so rosy. You know, I don't know whether to be thrilled about Monday morning or to punch you because I know it's not real. And I'm with you, I know. Thorns and thistles. It's not done yet. He is not done. He's still working. But we trust him. We trust him that in the midst of it all, we can perhaps glorify him in our work. He glorifies himself in his own work.